Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. Great to have you here. If you've come via YouTube and want to know more about what we do, it's easy. Head on over to officehours.global. That's our primary web portal for more information and links about the show. And if you want to get in quick and have easy access, because remember, this show is driven by your questions. So if you want the simplest way to put them in over uh, right here is a QR code. You can simply shoot that. It'll take you right into one part of the Mukana interface where you can add your questions in. Now, that is kind of a quick and easy way to get your questions in. It is a little bit different from full-scale joining Mukana and being part of the community there, and that's really fun because you can discuss the questions, and there's just a, a robust community of people who watch the show and hang out there. But if you just want to get a quick question in, the QR code you're seeing right here will do that, so shoot it with your phone or whatever else you have that reads QR codes and participate. And you can Those also questions. oh go ahead. You can also Alex. do askofficehours.com. So if, if the QR code isn't working for you or you don't have you're not so you're watching this on a phone of course just just go to askofficehours.com and that's open 24 7 so you can ask these questions these general questions any time of the day um, and we will bring them in each morning to um, to add them to the show and today in our second hour, we're going to be having a roundtable discussion of how to use various forms of business communication. And with this panel, you'll definitely want to stay tuned for some great ideas about maybe what are the platforms or processes to do that. That's our second hour right now. What's our first question for today, Jason? John Preto in Las Vegas, Nevada writes in, I have something to share that I believe the community would find interesting. For example, it's hardware related. Interesting. Uh, I'm in the wrong place. So, yes, there we go. John Preto. John, take it away. So the boys at PTZ Optics knew I was level three certified Dante. I also took the AV exam, which is one of the electives. And they sent me this guy to test out. This is the link, brand new link 4K. So 4K, so it's got a smaller sensor. It's a one over one eight sensor on it. But this is the 20X optical zoom camera. And... It has, you know, there's three flavors of Dante AV. There's the Ultra, then there's A, and then there's H. And this runs on H, which is H.264 standard. So a lot of the cameras out there uh, that already have H.264 can implement the software version of Dante into their cameras. And then if you've already got Dante set up in your network, it's super easy to add this as another device. It just shows up into the controller, and then you patch it in. And the one challenge is Dante Studio today only runs on a on a PC. So you have to have a PC with an NVIDIA card to run Studio, and then you patch it in. Then you could feed that video in into directly. If you run Studio, it shows up as a web camera directly in OBS or Zoom or anything else. Picture quality, is it looks really, really good. It's way better. I have the original 20X. It's no comparison. Color science is better. Low light performance is better. Um, so I'm pretty, pretty happy with this. I'm still testing it out, uh, within my network, uh, but I'm really happy with this and Dante AV network, um, it is really simple and, uh, to set up if you're a Dante house. Have they suggested a suggested retail price yet, John? Do you know what? 28, $2,800. $2, okay. There you go. New player, Alex. That's all I was going to ask us what the price was. <laughs> 2,800 bucks. Yeah. <laughs> all right. There we go. Uh, Jeffrey Powers, you had some thoughts. 
Yeah, I love, I love that. I actually they I actually have the move uh, because I run NDI in my shop, and it it's it's the same sensor, same everything in there. The one thing about the link that you do have to remember when you go to purchase, there is an NDI version and there is a Dante version. I found that out at Infocom, so uh, make sure that you're getting the right one. There you go. Well, some you know more continued improvement in the equipment use we use for these shows and for other things. Let's go to next question. Douglas Carmichael writes in, what software tools could be useful to integrate lighting and video with music? I've heard of Resolume as a common tool used for that task. Alex. I mean, typically it's just separate pieces of software. Resolume, Resolume does allow you to do some of that integration, but Resolume's really, there's a lot of things that Resolume does, and it's not really specifically designed to make that actually happen. But what you're really talking about is being able to organize cues. So Isadora does that kind of thing, <laughs> you know, so... There's a lot of other tools in that area that, that will do that. But but Isadora is one of them that they use for theaters. Resolume is going to do the projection. Um, it can send out those cues. And then you simply, so via something like OSC. So Resolume can do that. Um, and then you can send that out to, and also QLab. Um, these are all these are all things that, that can send out the commands that are required. Then you have a lighting board like an ETC um, to, uh, to get those uh, cues and then send them out to the light. So when you're integrating it, you're still typically integrating the lighting with a, a some kind of lighting board. Um, you can do it without that, but I wouldn't recommend it. John Preto. I'm a Resolume owner. Resolume is the name of the company and Arena and Arena, Avenue are right. the name of the products. Um, it, it's mostly used in the DJ world for fancy, you know, integration of lights. I use it for projecting projection mapping on my house. So for Christmas and Halloween, I use Resolume Arena. That's what I thought. You know, when I heard about this, there is a whole subclass of performers out there who do VJ work. That's kind of a video jockey as opposed to a just jockey handling only the music part of things. And they often have packages that are specific to VJ. So if you want to just uh, search on VJ software, you might find some more additional information. Alex, do you have a follow up? Yeah, it's funny. I, I always think of uh, Arena is the only thing we ever use from Resolume, so we tend to think of it that way. Um, but Arena has definitely expanded past just DJs. I think it's really where its roots are. But uh, we see it in a lot of events being used for a variety of different, you know, blending different screens together and organizing those those um, those displays. We should get those guys on. I mean, I think it'd be a really good thing for people to see. I think it's a big vertical out there, and I think a lot of people are interested in it. So I would yeah. definitely support that. Let's move to the next question. John Fisher in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, writes in, when repurposing Mac computers to act as dedicated single-task machines, would you only consider Apple Silicon machines at this point? Is there a reason not to consider older Intel-based Macs? And this is going to generate some discussion. Nigel DeSau, you're going to start us off here. Yeah, I think it's really not the age of the Mac. It's the age of the operating system I would worry about. And Fuzzle does the app you want to um, run does the latest version or a version good enough for you run on that machine uh, is that machine connected to the internet in which case you want to be very sensitive about which versions of old operating systems you connect to the internet and what else you have on that machine and so to me anyway it's really about the operating system level you need rather than the machine if the machine is working fine and the app works fine on it keep using it uh jo jesse kester um, also something to consider is that RAM makes, if the single purpose is rendering, which is what we use all of our older single purpose Macs for, uh, RAM makes a huge difference and the older Macs are easier to upgrade RAM than the new ones, which are uh, just, just south of uh, impossible. <laughs> Jeffrey Powers. 
<coughs> excuse me. So I have a 2011 uh, MacBook Pro behind me that uh, I installed NDI and am using it without a problem. Hook up a joystick to it, and that could actually be a joystick controller from there. I have a 2017 uh, that I'm still using for many different uh, functions, and of course, the 2017 is uh, is going to be supported in the next oh, uh, uh, next uh, operating system as well. So there is still a lot, and so that makes it a little bit cheaper. Plus, with older versions, you can still connect up that GPU unit and run a lot of those lot of the things that you used to run. And sometimes it's nice to have that that old FireWire capture card that you might have in the cupboard uh, hooked up to that computer for just something that you absolutely need a uh, single capture of some sort. Jason Bache. I'm with Nigel. Uh, if it needs to be logged into iCloud, then it needs to be running something that is current and currently secured. If it is connecting to the internet, then it needs to be secured accordingly. If it is just designed to be off in the vacuum of space somewhere, this really just comes down to to a question of longevity. If you need it to do this for the next several years, then think carefully about what would be involved with doing it again. Other than that, go for it. Next question. Jeffrey Reyes in Bronx, New York writes in, started learning Photoshop and the teacher had us change some defaults, toolbox to do columns, turn on zoom with scroll wheel, etc. Should I ignore these and use the default interface to see what works best for me? or follow along so I can best keep up. John Preto, what say you? I would say try everything and find out what you're comfortable with. I use the two column uh, icons on the side. I don't know about the zoom, the zoom on the scroll wheel or not. It's a tool. Just play around with it, see what you like best, and then move forward. Uh, Alex? Yeah, I think that your teacher's used to the older version of Photoshop, so they probably have it set that way. The old version of Photoshop had two rows, um, and the new one, the new layout. When I say new, probably the last five or ten years. <laughs> so the, but Photoshop was two rows for the first twenty-five years, and it's been one row for the last ten years or whatever, eight years. So um, a lot of us would switch to the two rows almost immediately. I find the one row to be extremely annoying, but I don't know really whether it's annoying in itself or whether I'm just an old user that can't learn a new trick. So, um, so that, that's a, it's kind of an unknown there, but, but that's probably why the, the, they, they probably just use it for a long time and have an opinion that one is better than the other. But if you started from the ground up, you might find that it's just fine. Chris Fenwick. I would like to plug joining the show and joining the panel because we read your question early this morning, Jeffrey, and it sparked this really interesting conversation. We went through the Wikipedia for After Effects for Photoshop and talking about when what features were released at what time and what versions and when we first used it. I did not know that uh, the scroll wheel could zoom in Photoshop until I read your question, and I immediately went and dug in and found it, and I'm going to say uh, I'm going to start using that feature. I think that's pretty cool. There you go, Jeffrey Powers. Yeah, and two things to remember, because I'm using the beta of the new Photoshop with generative fill. That's going to add more features that uh, that will add more preferences as well in new screens. And then, of course, every time that you reset your Photoshop, it will reset all those settings. You'll have to remember what you had set up. So always keep a, a good good idea as as to how to get into those preferences, because we were scrolling through those preferences, and I was having a hard time trying to find some of those options. Next question. 
Andre Dolay in Berlin writes in, for an upcoming event, I need to stream three parallel streams with different audio to YouTube and generate three iframes for the customer's website. What service is recommended? We have a Vimeo Pro account, but that would give me only two parallel streams. Alex, can you help him out? Yeah, I mean, what you, what you really want to do is look at the possibility of how do you uplink or how do you get to an encoder. Uh, we, now, we use hardware encoders for this, um, So, but what you can do is pack all the languages onto one, um, into one video frame. So if you have something that can manage more than just two channels, so this isn't just doing individual uplinks, but typically the way we handle this is we'll take a, an elemental link, um, we will pump in uh, one SDI signal with up to 16 channels. The little link only does eight channels, but that's up. That's for four stereo um, languages uh, or four stereo independent audio feeds would be possible with that. So, um, so you have the pairs. All of them are bound together. They all go up to AWS. In AWS, you can set multiple out points to YouTube, and then and then that there you go. <laughs> like you've got um, at least three of those in stereo. Now, a lot of times it just depends on whether you have a stereo show or not. If you don't have a stereo show, you could put the first two as stereo as stereo English and then have six other languages. So there's, um, I know that some folks do as many as 14 languages on top of the stereo, the original stereo pair. Um, so, and the, all those go up and it's just easiest to get it up there. We have hardware encoders, some larger elementals that we use um, that will do the same thing. It'll look at those. And what we're doing is building separate, in, in each one of those encodes, we just say the first one takes pair one, the second one takes pair two, and you turn the other channels off. You do need to test it a lot, <laughs> so it's it. You know, you can accidentally uh, get too many too many channels or get them mixed and matched. But if you test it a lot, you should find that that's just a, a turnkey solution. Um, again, we use the Elemental links for that. Um, we also use Elemental larger Elemental encoders for the same thing. Um, so I don't have a lot of experience with using software to do that. Um, but that is uh, those are the ways that we've done it in the past, and we've done it quite a few times very successfully. Perfect. Uh, next question. Tim Holm in San Lorenzo, California, writes in, is there a good way to help volunteers who switch cameras to do better with paying attention to shot angles, timing, etc.? Note, currently they are managing a PTZ and one camera person. They are taking and calling shots. Start with Jesse Kester. Jesse? The best way to do this is to be on comms during the show and giving them live feedback on their shots and cuts as they're happening. Um, <clears throat> Second best would be uh, to sit down to record the actual edit as you're doing it, and then afterwards sit down with your team and watch it and discuss the shots and how they could be improved. And the third best way is to record the show and upload it to something like Frame.io, where people can give feedback as they watch it individually. Liberty White. I love that Frame.io reference. I've done production, volunteered at church and Buckhead Church, and a lot of churches now have, um, while they're volunteer run, but they've leveled up their production a lot. And what has been tremendous for me as a volunteer, but also our teams, like Jesse said, is the after part, like looking at actually going through it and talking through and showing them what worked, what didn't, and how to, um, and even modeling. So one of my 
points, even like actually, whether that be a volunteer day or having some kind of um, event or experience where you're actually, because sometimes it's like some course correction as well. So just depending on their levels, helping them there, um, sharing. I don't know if there's a resource or a ch- um, like a communication channel alluding to our second hour where volunteers get access to materials. So if it's not necessarily on that day, but then now really helping them getting in into the thought process of how to create these shots and having a channel or resource where you're sharing that information so they can get that as well. And then the last one being just mentoring so that having someone who they are either paired with or partnered with to help them with that outside of the shot calling. And Alex. Yeah, so I, I bring up a lot of live crews, um, oftentimes overseas, many of them are the students that I have in Rwanda and in other volunteer situations. And the way that we do it right now is I usually, it takes me about four hours to get the camera operators up to speed. Like when I say this, this is what this means. When I say this, this is what this means. And you kind of talk through what those things are with folks. And I oftentimes are working with people who have very little, I mean, like hours of camera operation experience. And so, so I just explain, like when I say, I want more nose room, I want this. If I want, you know, if I want, uh, you know, I want to give them a little more space in the back. I want this. If I if I want a head and shoulder shot, it looks like this. And we talk through all of those things and then we practice them. So the first hour is me kind of explaining things or the kind of things we try to simplify the cameras um, and let them explain it. Then after that, I direct the show. <laughs> so I cut the show. Um, the first couple shows, I'm going to cut the show myself. I'm going to call the show, ready camera one. camera. And what I'm doing is I'm setting the pace. I'm saying this is how this sounds to look at it. The next step after that is I'm going to sit on comms with them or I'm going to sit behind them and I'm going to call the show but have my TD cut it. They're going to get the use of the feel of the board and the rhythm of, of what we're doing. Um, and then at that point, we hand it off to them. And you know, so there's a little bit of a – if you don't – I find that if you just hand it off to them and try to give them feedback – it's really hard. You, you, this is the, the, what I'm just describing to you is the fastest way to get them up to speed. Um, uh, you know, to you know, within a couple shows, they're they're usually going at you know seventy, eighty percent of what you you were doing for these these are relatively simple shows. So the so that's the thing. I don't usually give people coaching unless something really is going wrong or something be, needs to be handled. I tend not to coach people during a show. So I tend to like, that's the, you know, it's kind of like now if they're doing something horribly wrong, then I take on, but if they're going a little slow or they're not taking the angles that I want, it's really easy to get people into their head, you know, and, and once they get into this thing where they don't know what they should do next and they get into this unknown area, then you just might as well just call the show, you know, like it's not going to like you can decide I'm going to take over the show and call it, but I wouldn't give them feedback on it. If they're not doing a good job, just take over and tell them what to do next, um, because you're basically doing that if you're giving them feedback during the show. And we just see the most the highest number of mistakes is when we're trying to push thing, push them some other direction. And we, we find that with clients too, when they push us to do things, it's just people will very quickly get to a point where they kind of disengage um, control and ownership. And once they do that, it's really hard to get a good show out of them. So, so the, um, so those are the, the way that we, you know, again, training the camera operators, then doing it yourself, then handing it on, then directing the show and then letting them run the show. And uh, we've been really successful, especially in Rwanda, uh, making that happen. 
It is time for me to mention questions and the fact that your questions, as always, drive this show. So if you have questions for anyone on the panel, remember you can use the regular Mucana system. You can also put it in using the QR code down here in the corner. Uh, that will get you popped right into the pre-question thing, and those questions are migrated over. Uh, we also allow both first and second hour questions, and in our second hour we're talking about business communications today, all sorts of things. What platforms do you use? Are you doing it through Slack or whatever? Um, those kind of discussions will be our second hour. So let's get to our next question. Jason? John Fisher in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, writes in, taking on a digital signage slash information display project for a nonprofit client. I like DAC board, but is there a good alternative that doesn't carry a monthly cost? Jason Bache, start us out. You got it. Okay, have I got a solution for you. Poster booking. This works really, really well, and I don't believe there's a monthly cost until you get into a whole tonnage of signs. Um, McDonald's uses this. It's it, it. This is a big and robust thing that um, that works on Raspberry Pis, Fire Sticks, Android. Um, you can even use it and drive it from a touchscreen tablet. And um, yeah, pr- uh, be, as simple as LG's WebOS, something that I would never let on the internet. But that's uh, that's how flexible it can be. Sounds really interesting, Alex. Yeah, and so Jason's is probably the right answer for you. The other ones to look at, which may have some cost to them, is um, PlaySignage.com and Sedna. Uh, Sedna is, uh, these are both based on some conversations I had with Phil Lenger, who manages a lot of the screens uh, at, in, in um, Times Square. <laughs> so, so those are the two that, that uh, he suggested. I think Sedna is, does have a yearly cost of like $350 a year, and PlaySignage.com I'm not sure of, but those are the two that, that came up in that conversation. I'd, I'd recommend taking a look at them as well, just to know what you're options are. Next question. Tyler Roberts in Chambersburg writes in, has anyone tried this solution for mixing on a Yamaha CLQL uh, and Rivage? Rivage? I don't know. Console. And it's innovatestudio.co.uk and it's the PanLab console. Alex. This looks amazing. <laughs> so we'll, we'll, we'll get the we'll, we'll put a note. Uh, we're going to put a pin in this one to bring them on for one of the audio days. Uh, so what it looks like it does is it, a little like the controls that we saw last week. It allows you to. It's using the pan tools internally uh, in these um, things to basically it takes that over and is able to move things in a three more of a three D space. Um, and it looks really powerful. I've never thought of doing what it's doing, you know, by the software, basically using what's built into the mixer, but giving it the, the capability of doing object-based um, immersive audio. Uh, definitely want to check it out. So stay tuned for more of that. Um, I hadn't seen it before you asked, uh, but um, we're definitely going to take a look at it because uh, it looks like a really cool piece of software. Sounds exciting. Let's go to next question. Kyle Heyman in Chicago, Illinois, writes in, I'm seeing more chatter amongst friends about the U.S. total eclipse in 2024. Will or when will the office hours, after hours coverage planning begin? Oh, we're such nerds. You can tell there's been a lot of back channel chatter about this already. Alex, your thoughts? Soon. We've been talking about it on some of the shows. Um, we will probably put out a call to action within the next month um, so that people can start to plan. We have to figure out where we're going to do it. Um, we're threatening to do it in a couple locations in succession. So something in Texas, something in Indiana, possibly something in Erie, uh, those kinds of things. It goes through those cities. But if you're if you're interested, just keep your eyes open. But we're going to do a call to action so we know who's where and who's on the spine of that of that eclipse. The eclipse is April 8th of 2024. 
So it's a little right. It's right before um, uh, NAB, which is a little hard, hard for us, but it, it, once in a lifetime, this is a, uh, a four and a half minute eclipse, which of to- the total eclipse time is four and a half minutes, I believe, which is three times more than at least what I saw for uh, the last eclipse that went the other direction across the United States. And, um, and I got to tell you that minute and a half was amazing. And I will definitely be somewhere underneath that spine um, on, on April 8th, even if it's cloudy. And if it's cloudy, I might move somewhere else, but it's worth, it's worth seeing. It's, 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 it's a really amazing experience and we're hoping to cover it. My thought of having a couple locations is also to spread out our risk um, that if we don't get clouds on one place, we don't get clouds in all of them. So we're going to kind of take a look at that. So stay tuned for more. Sounds very exciting. So something to look forward to for the office hours, teams and community. Next question. Paul Wall, host in Austin, Texas, writes in, what's the difference between a YouTube show that grows slowly and one that is an instant sensation? Liberty White, start us off. Paul, I wish you were on the panel today because there's so much to, I feel like there's so much more to unpack with this to to do justice, but uh, I'll go ahead and try and I'm going to do it from the reverse. When you think about a YouTube show that possibly has like instantaneous, like they're go viral. Some of them, it could be a handful of videos that relies on timing. So just either when they put the content out, the relevance of what they're talking about, because if you are talking about the news topic of the day and you've got great content, then yes, you will most likely the algorithm will love you because people are looking and searching for that content. But then it's also fundamentally the consistency. So a show that grows slowly over time, that's the consistency of putting out the content, building the audience and the community and one of the questions I had for you feel free to put it in the chat is it's also dependent on your content like what's the message or the niche because if you're a niche audience that could take longer but you are growing slowly but you are growing because you're providing value so to just recap I would say that it's a matter of consistency timing relevance and then just the distribution meaning the community that you're able to build around it. Nigel. Yeah, I was going to double down on that. There's a great word called zeitgeist, which uh, Google used to use for a name of one of his conferences that I think is really the key thing here is, which is you have to be of the moment of time where it's something that's being discussed, that that if you can intersect with what, as you know, uh, we talked about in terms of people are Googling for or searching or something, if you are in the moment and your podcast is of that moment and is touching that nerve, then you stand the opportunity to get a huge market. The difference between now is getting a huge market and keeping a huge market, which is when Liberty's conversation about consistency and quality, I think, really uh, matter. I think the third thing for me is that the presenter or the the voice of this thing has to be one that works for the audience that is watching it. Uh, I watch some very strange podcastings and the things that uh, on YouTube and things that appeal to me typically are around the presenter has found a way of touching something that makes it work for me. So those are the three things for me. Jesse Kester. I would be cautious about believing the myth of the instant sensation. Many of those are quite a long time in the making. And the ones that do grow very quickly uh, understand that there's a very concerted effort behind the scenes to make that growth happen across multiple platforms and a very coordinated uh, strategy for for, uh, 
instant growth. They make it look easy. That doesn't mean it necessarily is easy. Jeffrey Powers. One th- <clears throat> excuse me. One thing that's said is that you do not, if you're starting a YouTube channel, the fir- the one thing you don't want is your first couple videos, to, uh, one of those first couple videos to be viral, unless you're able to rinse and repeat that process, because all of a sudden you have one that spikes and then everything else that dips down, which really can affect some of the stats that uh, and going forward on there. Uh, the one thing that a lot of YouTubers do is they go through the analytics and they fine tooth comb it. And they see where people are coming in, where people are going out, what uh, what they like, what they don't like, where the comments are coming from. So, and and there are some groups out there that are analyzing all of that and then sending that back. So it's a paid service, so you know what to do to do on your next video. And it's really about being able to where where you're planning to go from there. I've seen everything from, you know, like the the uh, the package, the glitter bomb uh, video, uh, uh, rober. Uh, he he made that, and then he, he took a year off, if I remember correct, on his uh, on his videos, and, or he took a long time off, and then he made the next one. Now I think he's making some more strategic moves on his videos uh, from there. But I've seen I've seen it where somebody has you know one video and, and as as sensation if they brought the audience in from Instagram or another uh, uh, group as well, uh, or uh, then people that just kind of they're taking their time. They can't dedicate weekly or whatever to get to the next level, but they slowly do. I've, you know, I've been doing my YouTube channel for over 15 years and I've got a pretty good audience, but you know, it's not as spectacular as some of these other uh, uh, YouTubers out there uh, because they put a lot of time and, uh, and, and days into their videos. Chris Fenwick. Yeah. uh, The other thing to think about is, um, instant success can really change your life. Uh, We had an editor that we were very comfortable working with uh, at the beginning of COVID, Alan Seawright. And uh, like a couple of months into COVID, he's like, dude, I can't, I I can't, I can't work for you anymore. I go, why? And he goes, he goes, well, we started this YouTube channel and it literally blew up in his face. Like it's, it was an instant success. Um, it's called Cinema Therapy, and Alan is a filmmaker and his friend is a therapist, and they look at topics in movies and sort of deconstruct it. <clears throat> it's, it's, a, it's a neat idea. But Alan's life overnight completely changed from being a, you know, uh, budding filmmaker, editor that we would hire. He's like, no, dude, I'm now all of a sudden a YouTuber. And all of his income now comes from YouTube, and it changed like over the course of about two months, his life flipped upside down. He's happy, but it can it can change things really quickly. Couldn't have happened to a nicer guy either. Liberty, thoughts? Yeah, I just wanted to come back and kind of highlight what has been shared with that the difference between slow growth is you can manage it. You can manage when you put content out, your frequency, and once that, like that instantaneous success and how that impacts your mental health. So just putting that out there, like your capacity for that. So that's a a key thing that differentiates slow growth and instantaneous growth. Alex, another thought? A lot. 
Yeah, I, it's funny. It, a lot of YouTubers, a lot of times, you know, and even I have always recommended doing something regular. We do something very regular here. But the a lot of YouTubers have been finding that um, as they discuss, you know, in some of the circles that I'm in, uh, discuss it that not necessarily every week, um, you know, they, uh, you know, some of them like Mark Rober is a good example. He does them when he's good and ready. <laughs> you know, and so um, and, you know, other folks uh, have really slowed down their production. The thing that you can do is that the, the thing to think about is that if you start bringing on staff, like if you start getting a lot of people going and you grow really fast, there's a temptation to like try to take advantage of the moment. But now you have overhead and that overhead, you, you saw what happens with Linus Tech Tips where that overhead takes over, you know, like you have to keep on trying to build a nut. I mean, I think that uh, Linus Tech Tips has like 100 employees or 80 employees or something like that. And you're trying to now and I can tell you as someone who had to make a half million dollars a month, you know, like it's, it's a grind, you know, and you sit there not on YouTube, but on production, it's a grind to suddenly have, you know, you stop thinking about creativity or production. All you think about is payroll, you know? And so, so you just want to be careful of making sure that whatever you do here, you can, you is sustainable by you for a little while, while you make that decision and you can slow that rate down a little bit and, and, um, and do that. And you might, you know, are you going to make as much money? No, but maybe you'll take home more of that money and you might have more, less overhead where you can kind of flex in and out. But I think that no matter how big, if I don't have a big YouTube channel, but no matter how big that channel got, I'd probably take it slow, you know, to, you know, of, of how productive I am and make sure that it's good, you know, good stuff. Um, but it also just takes a lot of time, you know, so most of the, I think that Marquez Brownlee had the best, you know, like the first hundred videos, you're going to get like 10 views. <laughs> so, so just keep that in mind. Well, yeah. And just in terms of personal growth for you, if you own this channel, all of a sudden you're going to be in a lot more meetings with a lot more people dealing with accounting and legal and all these things. And that may not have been your passion, well, but and suddenly this is the point. It's the a other thing deal now. The other thing is to know where you want to go with it. I've had friends who've had big viral um, things and they suddenly, as, as Bill said, brought immediately into Hollywood and other things to have meetings. And they just didn't know what they wanted to do next because they hadn't, they hadn't thought about that. They just put out the, they were just trying to do the video. So having some ideas pre-cooked before you do anything that you think is going to go really viral is also a good, a good thing to do. Chris Fenwick, you had a last comment before we move on? Yeah, what Alex was just saying, it's kind of like the curse of a, of a rock and roll band and their second album. You know, like the first <laughs> album is based on your whole life up until that yeah. album is released. And the second album is about how hard life is touring on a tour bus, you know, yeah. because that's all, because you, you're drawing from so little. So success can, uh, success built up over time has, has, gravitas to it because it has that time and all of a sudden alan and his buddy and i can't remember his name now they got to churn out these great cinema movies as uh, cinema therapy episodes once a week they're doing a pretty good job though anyway yeah that that reminds me of the phrase one hit wonder the reason it exists is that sometimes that spark of magic is just random and it happens then can you convert into a long-term career of growth and and stability, hard to do in a lot of cases. So good question, Paul. Thanks. Let's move on to the next question. Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida writes in, do you think that the Obspot Tail Air might be a solution to capture conference presenters in a small breakout session? And Jeffrey then Obspot.com. Oh. Go ahead. Excuse me, Jeffrey. Jeffrey's got one. 
It's, 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 it's this one, this one right here. Uh, so what this is, uh, for those of you who don't know, it's just basically the OBSBOT Tiny 2, except now it's got a battery, it's got HDMI on it, it's got NDI on it, uh, you can do RTSP on it. So you can actually have this as a wireless uh, camera. For a conference setting, I did do uh, I did do some tests outdoors. It's not the greatest of audios, uh, but it does do a, a, a really good job when it's up close and even about four or five feet away from that. Uh, once again, I, I probably wouldn't set this in on a conference uh, unless I absolutely needed to, and I could actually run my own audio, which you can definitely do because there is a 3.5 millimeter jack on here. But what this will excel in in a conference room is being able to move over to the person that's actually, or the part of the table that's actually talking and uh, and capture it from there. Other than that, you know, if you don't need to have the wireless aspect, you know, the, uh, the Tiny 2 is going to do exactly the same thing as this one. Nicely done. Thank you very much. And if my mouse is in the right place, we're going to the next question. Brian Carney in Wheaton, Illinois, writes in, looking to freshen up my Premier Transition plugins. Obviously more subtle and not gaudy, i.e. blur wipes. Also, anything specific for bringing text on and off the screen? Alex. I just prefer, I prefer subtle. <laughs> so that's the, I mean, the thing is, is that I, I you know, I think that, and, and Chris is probably someone also that can talk about that as you start to think about text coming on. The thing that probably annoys me the most is when people want to do all kinds of crazy stuff with their lower thirds and everything else or, or other things. It's just keeping it clean and moving through unless you're really, really good at it and you're going to spend a lot of time making it great. Keep it simple. Dissolve in, dissolve out sweep in sweep out you know not you're not overly fast those are all things that it's um you know they you know there's the saying it's better to keep one's mouth shut than to and look foolish than to open it and remove all doubt and and so the um and so the you know you're just going to kind of not not overplay your hand uh so so just really think about how you can uh just do things very simply if you're not going to unless you really have the the chops to make it complicated and almost Never does that work. Chris Fenwick. Yeah, I totally agree. So think about this, Brian. Um, everything you do on screen should have meaning and purpose. And if you, and if you live and die by that uh, well, uh, you'll, you'll probably do a pretty good job. So quite often, quite often we'll do something because we can, and just because you can doesn't mean you should. And so it, it's interesting when like a new plugin comes out, all of a sudden you start seeing like that. It's like, ugh, you know, like, like what is the meaning and purpose behind that transition? Um, does it fit the branding of the company or the project that you're working on? That's a good question to ask. Uh, I, I remember very early in my career, trying to make everything have like a really cool background and a great shadow. And, and like, I was trying to throw so much uh, on the screen and I was watching, I was looking at stuff coming in from the biggest clients I was working for. And the vast majority of stuff that I was seeing was like white text on a black background. And I remember thinking once I was like, why do these art directors make so much money? Like, what do they do? They go, wait, I have an idea. It's going to be great. Here we go white text on black. 
And all of a sudden, the guy walks away with six figures, right? And so, but meaning and purpose, does it add to the show? Is it making it better? Does it distract from what you're trying to do? And that's why so much stuff ends up being very simple. Because all I needed to do is know who's talking. I don't need to know how many plugins you have or how many, or how long you've been working in Premiere. I just need to know who's talking. Just tell me who's talking. Remind me who he works for. That's all I care about. So ask yourself that. Uh, is what I'm doing have meaning and purpose? Jason Bache. Yeah, to summarize, more is not better. It's just more. Yeah, and from my experience in the advertising world, that one line of white text on black might have taken 15 meetings and a lot of discussions about typeface size, you know, and 35 other things to get down to that simple expression that was exactly right. Alex, you had a note? Sorry. Uh, last night I spent five hours making sure everything was right for a countdown clock. <laughs> so, you know, like, and it was just, it was just adding some text that counted down for two minutes. And the <laughs> so art you, directors, you know, I know that's exactly where they live. <laughs> there wasn't even, it wasn't even an art director. It was just me sitting there just making yeah. sure that, but, but you know, there's not, there was nothing complicated about what I was doing. It was all about these little, you know, I've got to transition from something that's looping to something that is a countdown. I have to have like, how is this going to disappear and how this is going to appear. And you know, all that time was not spent on anything crazy it was spent on the timing of the blink that I had to do and the, and the, and how it was going to transition to this thing. And all of it was dissolves in very simple little, uh, little animations. It was just figuring out all the little details, making sure that all the points were just right and the distances and all the bits and pieces. It was, it was, um, but it was, it's worth it, I think, but, but it would, it, but yeah, that's where you want to spend time is those little details, not the crazy stuff. Chris, can you quick follow up oh, really quickly? So Alex, you're saying that you were, of you were changing the timing of the blink. Were you redefining time? Yeah, the timing yeah, of the exactly. blink. What? Yeah, I was no, no, no. <laughs> it's no there cosmic was, implications. It, it has you to have do, taken. It, it has you to, have taken this career to a whole new level. It's I, like I've decided one second is way too long. Twenty nine <laughs> frames, way too much. You know, everything's twenty seven from now. Because you know why? Because twenty nine drives me crazy. Well, it's got to be twenty seven. One of the best things, not not in this one. This one was very precise as far because I get I get into I a lot of precision. Never, ever be twenty nine, twenty seven, or I'm going crazy. <laughs> the funny thing is, is one some of the best countdown clocks out there. Not not for for speaker timers. So the best speaker timers have an adjustable speed, and so um, just this little. I shouldn't tell speakers that because I shouldn't put this on the show because then you'll be worried. But we turn that speed up just a little bit and that helps us helps the speaker get done on time <laughs> so just if you're doing it up too fast they just ignore it and they but, decide it's broken we, no one would ever do that to you mr speaker or Ms. speaker <laughs> no one would ever exactly. do that so just if relax. you're listening if you're listening and you ever work with me i would never do that to you i would, I would yeah. never speak to speakers <laughs> all right we are at the time when i need to say uh thank you for being here your questions are what drives this show always so please get into the question queue we have room for questions also the second hour should be fascinating today so if you have questions for the second hour tag them with that there's a tagging system in there and if you really want a quick access i always do that with my wrong hand there is the qr code for doing that let's move on to the next question and nigel i'm sorry 
Billy B in Portland, Oregon writes in, what is the preferred method for adding lower third graphics or perhaps 16 of them to a live stream using A10 Mini Pro, not the extreme version, two cameras and a live view solo HDMI. Thanks. Jesse Kester is going to start us out. Jesse. If you want a little bit of animation, what I would do is dedicate one of your HDMI ins to some uh, keynote on an iPad and you build slight animations with no motion blur or transparency and you do like a, a Luma key and you make your background, background absolute black and then you make your uh, lower thirds not absolute black and that's, uh, that's how you can get uh, animation in. If you want to do something simpler, what I would recommend is loading your lower thirds in at, uh, into your ATEM software controller as PNGs with transparency and building macros or using a stream deck. I do it with macros, but you really want to test those macros before you go live. Jeffrey Powers. So it really depends on whether you want clean feed out of that ATEM Mini Pro or not. And if you're using the, uh, the USB-C cable to actually record your individual uh, individual uh, frames. Uh, what I would most likely do is, because uh, I don't want to have those lower thirds, I don't want to have those graphics onto the video when I'm doing the uh, recording, but then of course the final recording it would do. So what I would do is I would uh, take the display out and I'd make it into the clean feed for there. That would then go into a computer using something like OBS, Wirecast, VMix, whatever. And then some of them have graphics in there. And of course, uh, so you can also port in other graphics like SBX graphics to use that as the lower third. That would then send out to wherever you go. Of course, there's many different hardware solutions if you do it that way as well. Alex Lindsay. Yeah, I mean, outside of using the media pool, which we talked about, and, and Jesse's, I would probably approach it the way Jesse approaches it, which is having a Luma key um, that's there. You can also use a chroma key. The problem with chroma key is, is that you're actually dealing now with 422, so you can actually see some jagged edges when you key it. Um, so that's why a lot of people will start with doing green, but really the Luma key will give you more options. It'll be a cleaner around curves or any kind of angled um, graphics. You can get really subtle there. You can actually have some, if, if your foreground is um, bright enough, you can actually get some motion blur. You can do um, transparency. I did everything out of Keynote for the first two or three years of live streaming. So, um, so we just did all of those things out of there. The other thing that you can do is remember with Photoshop, Photoshop has the ability to replace all of those lower thirds in your media pool directly. So it has a direct connection. And what we've done in the past is build scripts that will go do, do things like go out and look at, a, at an Excel file, grab all those files, pull them into Photoshop, generate a whole bunch of new um, uh, generate a whole bunch of new lower thirds and insert them into the into the ATEM switcher. Um, and you can just that way when you go from session to session to session or groups of people together, you just hit a button and it just it just spins up the next version of it. And so there's a lot of ways for you to kind of um, you know, automate those things as well to make it work a little bit better. Jason Beach. Yeah, and with respect to file format, Targa is, um, I think, the, the way to do this in a way that it cannot possibly mess up. I don't, uh, know, if, I don't know if you can do a Targa with, uh, oh, you mean for the stills? Yeah, for the stills. Um, if you're doing for, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. If you were doing stills, I would highly recommend using the Photoshop plugin for it. It really works well. Like you build the Photoshop, in Photoshop you do it with uh transparency and then you use the plugin that will automatically install if photoshop is installed on your machine when you install the switcher software the switcher software will put that plugin it's it's not a plugin it's a it's a it's on, i think it's under scripts 
but it'll be it'll automatically insert it into Photoshop and you'll see it, you know, to export black to black magic there. So I would highly recommend that. And by the way, with if you're only using two cameras, you could theoretically send key fill to the other two um, inputs into the switcher. Jason, you had a very quick follow up. Yeah, quick follow up. A longtime friend of the show, John Barker, has H2R graphics, and that is an excellent place yeah. to start. Yeah, absolutely. There you go. Next question. Dylan Anthony in Portland, Oregon writes in, we use light key to control LED RGBW DMX pairs to light our small church's stage. The problem is we have to keep the lights powered continuously. If cut the power, the lights lose all the settings and we have to manually set them again. Is this normal? Yeah, I think he was talking about DMX par cans, which is a particular type of light used a lot in theater. Uh, Alex. Yeah, you don't want the you don't want the the lights to hold on to anything. <laughs> the lights are, should be dumb outputs, and you should have a controller. There's iPad controllers. I think one's Lumen um, is is one of the ones that you can get for the iPad, uh, or you can get a small lighting board. Don't have your lights try to hang on to that data. Of course, they definitely will lose that that data there. Not all lights will, but obviously yours will. But what you a, a very small lighting board or software, and then what you would need is some kind of IP. You know, using um, and John can probably suggest something. He's coming right after me, but you can, you need some kind of IP to DMX uh, converter um, and then and then have it done on your iPad or have a small lighting board that keeps keeps all those settings then you'll be able to turn them on on and off as needed um, but you don't want to try to have a light hang on to its settings you want to give it to it from an external source all the time it'll be a lot easier to manage over time John Preto I use light key on my iPad and I'm using the NTech controller and I don't have to keep my fixtures on they're controlled by light key through the NTech controller they work great there you go. Let's go to the next question. Henry Ramos in Yonkers, New York, writes in at NAB New York, Panasonic showed their auto-tracking PTZ system. It worked, but when pointed at a dark complexion, it failed. Do other brands do any better? Alex. No, it, they, they don't. Um, this is a really actually a big challenge. It's it's the it's the amount of contrast between details that that sometimes these these cameras have, um, and and it just has to be lit well, um, you know. And I think that one of the challenges um, that that we find is um, when we're, when we're lighting dark dark complexions, people will still put really bright backgrounds behind folks with um, you know dark complexions, and that really becomes a challenge because. If you put a white background or a very light background behind someone that has dark, you're kind of you're stuck with that exposure, or it'll blow out. So a lot of times, what we what we do tend we tend to do is slightly darker, uh, cool colors. We I tend to put cool colors, behind, except for today, I tend to put cool colors behind people, everyone, most of the time, just because it I think it makes the skin look better um, than than uh, warm tones. Um, but then on in addition to that, I try to avoid the top 25% of the exposure so that I have my I have the headroom that I need to uh, be able to bring people's complexions out. And when you do that, uh, we find that a lot of these auto trackers tend to work pretty well. It's just that they're not getting enough exposure um, on the on the subject because the backgrounds are too light. Thank you. Uh, next question. Nigel DeSau in Austin, Texas writes in, what is the plan for a watch-along party for the Apple iPhone announcement tomorrow? Oh, Nigel wants to weigh in on his own question, and it's a great question. So what thinking about the announcement? I have cleared my calendar to listen to Apple redefine, rename, 
and re-facilitate the USB-C cable into something sexy and new, which is uh, what they're going to have to do. Uh, it'll be interesting to see whether they find a use for it they've never seen before. So I will be watching. I don't know where everybody else will be. Betting on Apple Megapipe. Uh, Alex Lindsay. After Hours. We'll be watching it in After Hours. Um, we haven't, <laughs> we've been a little behind on it. Caught up with me. I have a production today, and I didn't, didn't, uh, didn't put out the announcement. But we will be doing it in After Hours uh, tomorrow at 10 o'clock. And um, so we'll, it's a second-ear experience. So you watch it, you put it on some other device or on the same device. You watch it on your own computer, but you'll hear us talking about it with each other. And we don't just talk about the releases. We talk about the cameras. We talk about the backgrounds. We talk about the audio. We talk about all the bits and pieces. So it's a little bit more of a full-featured coverage of the coverage. Uh, so um, so anyway, but we do that in After Hours, and you'll see a, you'll see a room available for that. So, so definitely come and join us. Usually it's somewhere between 50 and 150 people, depending on the release. Um, and so we'd love to have you there. A couple of us will be chit-chatting about that. Um, and it should be fun. And I think the only thing I want to know is I'm hoping if I'll leave immediately if, if 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 we don't get the best iPhone ever, ever, ever. Like if they come on, <laughs> I gotta tell iPhones. you, the best. Like like every year, it's the best. This is the best iPhone ever. I, I'm just waiting for a year where they just say, you know. Hard gear, we hard gear. We did the best we, we could. could. Yeah, it's, and there's a lot of chip chip it's shortages. Pretty good. And, but it's you know, it, it's a new, it's new, it's new. It's got some new features, but ah, I don't know if it's better than last year. Um, you know that that's what I'm waiting for. But no, we we uh, we'll be jumping on, and we expect to have also another party where we oftentimes just end up in after hours on Friday morning. The typical thing is on Tuesday we'll talk about it on Friday at 5 a.m. Uh, oh, we'll be just starting our coverage of IBC, but some of us will be hammering away at 5 a.m. on Friday to order our new phone. <laughs> so I wish Apple would just let us order the phone, like just say, hey, here's the deal. The top of the line phone is this much money. You can order it before we even announce it. And then there's a whole bunch of us who would just go, okay, that's a lot easier. <laughs> get, get Click the yes or no to auto yeah, ship. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It'd be a lot easier. <laughs> Chris, Chris. Chris is mortified. Fanboy, no, no, no. If, if you tune in, if you tune into the after hours, you're going to hear comments like this. You go, oh, did, did you see that? The shadow underneath his left foot is drifting. I think the Gaussian blur is too much. Yeah. You'll pass <laughs> these two things. The yeah, you'll hear all, all that kind Otherwise of stuff. Otherwise, it's um, boring. Like, it's not, it's like, I'm sorry, but Apple does the best of anyone because it's it's all recorded because everyone else is way more boring. But if you just sat at, I can't sit and watch a whole keynote. I mean, that's out if it's not a 2x right so yeah. I'll, I'll tell you this i have something really funny literally just last night uh, a friend of mine texted me uh not i say this because we have to remember just like how immersed in all this stuff we are a friend of mine uh texted me and they go hey um so i gotta buy a couple of phones i'm wondering you know do, do you know is there is there anything coming and i was like you're kidding right tuesday 10 a, you know 10 a.m announcement brand new phones will will be announced they're like how do you know oh because i don't live under a rock that's how i know they're like are you sure and i said a hundred percent you're gonna get a new phone on tuesday so anyway i thought that was funny john preto chris let's be honest uh, you don't have any friends uh anyways we have a we we have a bingo card for tomorrow that we'll be publishing. I use Bingo Baker. <laughs> we used it for WWDC, and Jonas won the bingo. So I'll have that available for anybody that wants it. 
What are some of your squares? Is this for things they say during this? Color like blue, color red, color... best ever is one of the squares. <laughs> it sounds is that like the a center, fun way Is play. best phone ever the center square? No. Free, and free. I know you're in Vegas. This is not waging. You're not doing like a grid and people are going to write buy squares or anything like that. Oh, let me write that down, Bill. That's a good idea. <laughs> Don't forget oh, one gosh. more thing. I've said something horrible. It could be Apple, it could be, it could be, it could be Apple, Apple roulette. Bingo. Apple roulette. <laughs> it's like you, you, you have different ones. They put it. I, I got three point one six millimeter bezel. Does that does that work or not? And you <laughs> thought there was no money to be made off of office hours. So I bet you. I bet you. There's a whole a whole. I bet there's a big chunk of Vegas that's committed to betting on. Oh my gosh, on the Apple of course keynotes. there is. <laughs> there's got to be. I mean, because they bet on everything. So it, that seems like. It, I've, how many complaints are posted What's about the, the nature under? of the USB-C implementation that Apple did on this Can phone? Can we move on? Can we go to the next thing? No. What, I mean, no. anything. Like, literally no. anything. No, absolutely not, Fenwick. <laughs> Jason Bache has his hand raised. Now we have to yeah. take care of Jason. He we, can go we, on um, <laughs> Please come into the second hour. We may very well drive you nuts. If you need to hear every word, then um, that might not be the place for you. Um, I, for one, am going to be using um, H2R graphics, and I'm going to put a hyperbole counter right up here and it's just gonna bing 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 all the way up so now i'm in a quandary uh let's very quickly just touch on the next question henry ramos in yonkers new york writes in any must see 9-11 documentaries to watch today mine is by the i'm gonna mispronounce it nudet brothers they are already embedded with the fdny on a different project on the day Alex Lindsay, any thoughts about this? No, that sounds that sounds great. I actually haven't seen that one, so I think that that might actually be a a really interesting interesting one to watch. So maybe we'll take take a look at that. Yeah, I think it, it'll be interesting. You know, it is. I, I have something to do tomorrow, and I saw nine eleven, and I thought, wow, it's been a long time. I think it's always good to revisit some of these things that were huge uh, moments. Uh, let's see if we can just touch really quickly on the next one, and then we'll be moving on. Paul Walhos in Austin, Texas, writes in, Research, ChatGPT uses an estimated 500 milliliters of water for every 5 to 50 prompts. Microsoft disclosed the company's water use spiked. Should we be concerned? John Preto, what say you about this? Paul, you know we love you. Uh, Were you the one that read the National Enquirer at the grocery store? Because those are the same people that are writing these headlines for these tech journals right now. Is water. there a connection between water use and uh, the the fabs cooling. that do these really? Cool. Yeah, they that's use it what for I was cooling, thinking. But, but water follows the laws of conservation. Water doesn't leave the planet. Very little water leaves the planet, and so we don't have a water drought issue. We have a water distribution problem. Yeah, I had, I, the, I had the hydrologist for NASA on my podcast. It was great. Go listen to that episode, Paul. Um, Jeffrey Powers, real quick. So I just asked ChatGPT that question because we have to do that. And it says concerns about water usage related to AI models like GPT-3, with, uh, which ChatGPT is based on, are primarily related to the environmental impact training of these models rather than their everyday usage. Uh, they talk about the training phase impact, data center cooling, operational phase efficiency, blah, 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 blah. These are a lot of things that any type of system, Facebook, uh, Google or anything like that is going to be using. So it's just a part of the business. 
Absolutely. All righty. Let's see some notes about what's coming up on Office Hours. Tomorrow, this should be really fascinating, Sketching in 3D, the Feather app. For those of you who are with us for, I believe it was Cinegear. Was it Cinegear? One of the other shows. Anyway, uh, Alex and uh, the field team, uh, Nick, found this app, Feather, a 3D sketching application for pen and touch devices. Everybody got really excited about it. So tomorrow, we are going to talk about that in our second hour. Anybody can create curves in 3D and hand over mesh data and other software from tablet, desktop, mobile. Uh, The chief engineer is going to be here along with the community manager. So they will be our guests on the show tomorrow. So that is tomorrow here in the morning on Office Hours. And just a little bit farther out, I wanted to note Thursday, Alex has a special guest coming in Calvin Roberts. This really looks fascinating. He's a former paratrooper and he's done video production on five continents at time in war zones, worked on feature films and more. So if you've ever been interested in extreme video and having to go places and do things that um, frankly scare most people, these uh, Calvin is one of the people who has done that for his whole career. So he should have some fascinating story and be able to help us understand that world. Um, Next up is our second hour in our IBC promo. For those of you who don't know it, we are heading out to IBC. Uh, our coverage will be all kind of revolving around that over the end of this weekend and the first couple of days of next week. We're also going to have a look back at it, I think, the following Thursday. But right now, to give you a little hint about what we're going to be doing, we have a little video for you to watch. Stand by. European members of the Office Hours community are heading to the International Broadcast Convention in the Rye Center in Amsterdam to bring you the latest broadcast trends and technologies to Office Hours Live from the exhibition floor. Join us on the 16th of September for the latest trends in broadcasting technologies and this year we are especially focusing on finding solutions for your production problems. Let us know what you would like to see, what problems you need to be solved over on officehours.global slash IBC. Welcome back. Our topic is business communications today and all of its aspects with so many platforms available. I know I, I get pinged on Slack and Discord is more and more used and some of the more traditional platforms for enabling communication between people in corporate circumstances or just business situations. What are you using for your communication? Today, we're having a roundtable discussion on that. We have an August panel of people who do this kind of thing all the time. And so we're just going to be chatting about whatever forms of communication you find the most facilitous for your communication, what you like to use, what's good and bad about it, and hopefully we can cross-pollinate some ideas. There are a lot of people here in the show who uh, spend a lot of time doing this kind of thing. Most of us have some form of business going on in the background that allows us to have our uh, some free time to do this. So uh, I'm sure we'll get a lot of good ideas. We're going to start this morning with John Preto. Let him chat a little bit, and then we'll go on through some of the other panelists. And then, as always, we'll be open for your questions. So if you have anything about... Uh, either communications processes that that may be fading that you've been using, but you're thinking they're not really doing the job anymore. What else is out there? Today is your day. Uh, John, kick it off for us. You know, I was reflecting back and trying to remember my first company that, that we started was 1990, and it was all related and focused around the phone system, which was a KSU, Northern Telecom, right? And so everybody had to have a KSU in their office and those those Northern Telecom phones and then voicemail. 
In my last office, we spent a lot of money on VoIP phones and nobody in my company used their phones on their desk. Everybody used their personal phones and we communicated mostly on email. And um, then we had a, we had a, a CRM that we used. Fresh desk is, was our main form of communication. So I thought that that was interesting. So in a 30 year time frame, it really migrated a far distance. I remember how f sophisticated I felt the first time I bought a Merlin system for our desks and in old offices that I was running. I thought, man, I really, I really reached the pinnacle here. It wasn't the pinnacle, but it was also interesting that it, when I eventually, some years later, migrated out of doing the office thing and did more remote, um, I made a lot of money on selling that Merlin system at the time. So there are these idea, there are these business communication devices and and schemes that rise become very popular for a while and then it transitions and suddenly everybody wants to use slack or something else it's just been fascinating to me nigel what are your thoughts i guess when i think about the change in the many 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 decades that i've been working uh, in business um the biggest change is the move from either physical or voice communication to text communication and it occurs to me it is directly proportional to the amount of which people are misunderstood. Um, there is nothing worse in business communication than short messages to deliver important thoughts. Um, they're not properly read, they're not properly understood, they're not properly interpreted. And almost every debate or fight or challenge I see at work nowadays almost comes out of something someone thinks they read or said in a message. So I would tell you that, well, short communications from Slack to text or any of those things are great for giving updates. They're really, really poor when you need to communicate something clearly or something difficult. Um, I, I can't tell you the number of times I've had to tell people, pick up the phone, you know, walk down the corridor go see the person, have a conversation. You are both talking about something and you are missing each other. And you won't solve that, whether it's with a partner, whether it's with a client, whether it's with a supplier. Um, we have a generation that believes that texting and text is a great way to communicate. And it lacks the subtlety and the communication and the physical presence that actually talking to someone does. So uh, I would say that's the biggest change I've seen and the thing that I keep reminding of. The second thought, uh, more quickly, is that if someone doesn't understand something, it's the fault of the communicator, not the fault of the receiver. Typically, you see it when there's a breakdown in communication, someone says, well, you didn't understand what I said which really means I didn't say it in a way that you understood it. So if you are trying to communicate with someone, make sure you do it in a way that the person receiving the message gets it, not in the way you want to communicate it. I just glanced at the panel while Nadja was saying those things, and everybody was just bobbing their heads. I think we've all been there, and we, we, that felt very real to our experience. Jason Bache, Liberty, you right, right after that. Oh, um, I need to repeat again what Nigel said. There, you can drive a bus between being impossible to misunderstand, to be misunderstood, and to, to speak clearly. 
okay, the two are not the same. Um, they should give this out, like, you know, with, with, with a business degree. And, like, you know, one of the very first chapters says effectively that. I also have to bring up uh, one fun little point in this book that um, my business degree didn't cover, which, which I found to be true almost by accident. It's one of those perfect moments of synchronicity. Um, and what the headline said was that a one-person business has departments, even if those departments are folders. It's just it's, it's one of those things. And I just turned to that the moment I found the prop, had to bring it up. But yes, Nigel's point is really, really like, you know, grit is a lot of things in business, not the least of which is making things um, crystal clear and impossible to misunderstand. Absolutely. Liberty. Cosine, 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 <laughs> cosine on everything that everyone um, has said. I, I think back to, um, well, one quick story of the time. It's almost 20 years now when I was um, working in the state. I was in the interactive team. And on my first day, and this kind of speaks to John saying just how communications has changed. They, I got a, was it, uh, we were, Blackberry. I got a BlackBerry on my first day. And I remember uh, at the end of the day, I called my mom. I was like, mommy, I got a phone. And she didn't get that. And I was like, they want to be able to reach me at any time of the day because they gave me uh, a, a mobile device for that. So, you know, just different organizations now that whether it be phone, whether it be email communications, just the depending on your role that speaks to your accessibility and people wanting to reach you. Um, the second thing, and I, I think I just shared this with someone the other day, is after like two or three emails or text messages and you're still on the same subject matter, that warrants, to Nigel's point, pick up the phone. Pick up the phone and call because I'm confident that whatever it is you're talking about, and I get documentation, you can do that after. And I'm sure some questions might come up in the hour of how to create a paper trail and things like that. But after two or three back and forth on the same subject, you probably could have handled that in in a like two minute, three minute phone call, um, jump on Zoom, whatever that may be. Um, also wanting to touch on having a a like a hierarchy system and I'm saying that's not the word that I'm looking for it is a escalation having some form of escalation communication so for us it is typically if something needs to be responded to within like a level one is just you can email that's a 24 48 hour response a level two is oh you know send the email for documentation but then buzz on our comms channel so that hey i just sent you that email so that the person knows this is something that possibly needs a response or attention in the next like one to six hours and then anything above that is the pick up the phone and call. Again, you still send the follow up email or send the email so they see it. But that also helps with just making sure that things are processed on time, that people understand expectation of when you need something responded to. So that's just something that I found extremely valuable because my priority might not be your priority, but if we understand that as we're communicating, when I do say, hey, this is a level three, that we're on the same page and that helps to mitigate um, issues and problems that might result because of a lack of communication. Nigel, you wanted to come back in? Please do. 
Yeah, I just wanted to build on something Liberty just said, and it's a reminder that all email and all text and all communication, particularly written, is discoverable, which means that once you've sent it, somebody could put it in a court of law. And the only reason I tell you that is, is you need to stick by the things you commit to, and, and that becomes a core to your business communication. Every time you write a piece of business communication, you are fundamentally committing to whatever you write in that, particularly to a third-party customer supplier, but increasingly to employees and other people. So be, be deliberate in your communications, particularly where they're written. Don't, don't just dish them off because it's quicker to do that than phone. Just remember, you're, you're making a legal uh, bond when you send that message. Jason, you had a follow-up? I do. A deliberate is the important part here, and that can also save your butt as well as getting it into the fire. So, you know, keep keep that in mind, too. If you end up with uh, situations that can be wishy-washy, uh, understand that you are creating a permanent record, and that can also potentially help you. Yeah, and, and paying attention to, you know, what you're sending out, even if you think it's the clearest thing in the world, it might not be received that way. I had a lot of circumstances. I'll never forget I had one circumstance on a shoot. I always try to sit down with everybody involved and I say, okay, our goals for making this video are this. We're going we're gonna to distill it down to the three goals. I can definitely accomplish number one for you. Number two, I'll try to get in there as much as I can. Number three, maybe. If, if something's going to go, it's going to be the number three goal. So I would ask them to prioritize so I knew what was important to them. I can't tell you the number of times in dealing with one of the stakeholders in this, they would spend all the time talking about number three. And I was kept saying to myself, am I an idiot for not getting across this idea that one is important Two is less important. Three. But it turns out that what I didn't understand was that three really resonated for them. And they had a lot of ideas about three. And for them, expressing their ideas and expertise in number three was more important for them. And so their attention, redirecting their attention to saying, yeah, yeah, three is great. Let's get to three. But if we don't do one perfectly, this whole project is in jeopardy. So it's just interesting the hearing of a message that you thought was clear and how the individual you're passing it off to can be a problem. Liberty, you had some thoughts? Yeah, you something you said. And then also John um, in the comments was just saying picking the best communication is important for whomever you're speaking to. And I couldn't agree more. Understanding if you lead a team or volunteers that you want to make sure like how do they what's the best way to communicate with them? But then also having something, because some people are audio, you know, they, they do well listening and that's how they process information. Some people are, are visual. Some people need that written detail. So that just being a part of just being effective. So you as, I think that was Nigel who said it before, you as the one who's communicating a thought, an idea, that understanding how best for them to receive it. So it's almost like, uh, and that's one of the, the wonderful things with Zoom is like we have the verbal communication of us speaking, you can share screen and have notes. But then now with Zoom having transcripts for those people who, you know, process information differently, that they can get the notes and always having like recaps, because you have the conversation, you 
think everybody is on the same page. There were the head nods. People were able to recite it back. And then, you know, something happens between the end of the meeting and the actual execution. So making sure that just as a tip, like having those those recap notes and those action items or whatnot happens next, just since our conversation is about just effective business communications, those are always helpful. All righty, we're uh, ready to dive into the questions from those of you who want to get in and weigh in on this. We're the question queue is building constantly. Your questions are most welcome on this topic, and everybody has these problems. Why well, I think it's going to be pretty universal today. So let's go on to the next question, Jason. What have we got? Andy Kokendorfer in VR Florida writes in: How do you effectively advertise live streaming production services inside a company as the company's production department? Thanks. Jesse Kester is going to start us off here, Jesse. Uh, the same way you effectively advertise uh, airbags, you drive the car into the brick wall. Um, you're going to have to start doing live streams yourself, and I would do them in private within the company, not broadcasting them and not advertising that you're doing it up the chain until you're pretty darn good at it. And then I would just show them what can be accomplished using live streams to do front-facing corporate communications. Liberty White. Depending on the size of the organization that you may need to show, as Jesse said, like proof of concept or what you're trying to do and how it benefits them. Um, a larger organization where there are more levels or more red tape that probably warrants walking around and talking to some of the people who are either senior leadership, maybe some other teams and just explaining and getting some buy-in with them of what you're trying to achieve, learn some of what their goals and what matters to them, the what's in it for me. So what matters to them so that therein, when you are pitching this, when you are trying to promote it, you have a certain type of voice and communication to this audience because you know that's their language, how they receive it. Then when you're promoting it to this type of audience within the organization that, you, again, you know what matters to them. So um, in this case, like these production services will help get you more leads that matters to sales and marketing. This production, us doing this in-house matters to the, the learning team because we can help reduce the time that you have to develop curriculum. I'm making all of that up because I don't know what your organization um, that you do. But those are just some of the ways I've, I've seen it. I've had to do it multiple times, not only with clients, but inside an organization where, again, priorities differ. So you want to understand what their priorities are and then let that tie into your priority of like, OK, we have this service. We want to help you. Nigel. In all communications at work, um, practice the behavior you want other people to follow. So if you want people to say, uh, to respond when you, that you've re they've received your email, then respond when you receive their email. And I think that's a, a sort of rule that you can apply here. So if you want people to use your service, use your service. Find a way to demonstrate to the organization how you can do that. If you're in the IT department, do a weekly office hours, do training, do something. But communication works, particularly new forms of communication work, tend to work in a company where people see it demonstrated and then they'll copy it. John Preto. So we've been doing live streaming since 1997. I tell people not to do live streaming because something's going to break, you're not going to do it right, and it's going to be a disaster. The only thing that I've seen work within a corporation is a weekly 
um, question and answer. So MidJourney is doing this quite effective. I did this in my last company uh, effectively. I used to get six to 800 people watching and it was 15 minutes of, of uh, news. And then I would answer questions for about an hour. MidJourney does it every week on Wednesdays. They call it office hours too. Um, and so we found those Q and A's to be super useful to our customers. All right, next question. Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana writes in, what are the benefits and dangers in using film scenes or ideas or just notable Bueller dialogue in business communications? Bueller, Bueller, Nigel Dessau. So I think the first thing is you can get a message across really quickly if it's a, a popular uh, reference that people get. But I will tell you the downside because there is a clip. So Sports Night, the Aaron Sorkin series, um, is full of brilliant management advice and brilliant stuff. I love it. It's a very important uh, TV series. If you've never seen it, to me, I love it. And there's particularly a speech in the second series, uh, William H. Macy does it. It's called the uh, Cliff Gardner speech. If you've never seen it, it's probably some of Sorkin's best writing. And I really, really, really wanted to use that with one of the teams uh, and my company. Because I thought it, it really sent a great message, except for the last line. And, and if they just focused on the last line of the, of the thing, they would miss the point of the other two minutes. So I sat down with the leader of that team and I said, does this work? And guess what? He only focused on the last line. So if you're gonna do it, uh, practice it, show it, demonstrate it, check it with somebody else. Something that is terribly, terribly meaningful to you and is blindingly obvious to you. What is the thought? What is the motivation? What is the driving thing? Completely miss on somebody else because the way it will occur to them could be completely different. Boy, do I support this thinking. I had, we had, I had the same circumstance in one of my videos I was doing for uh, a big client they wanted to show a fun, highlighter look at all the ways that things could go wrong. And uh, I didn't talk them out of it, and I should have, because at the end, all, anybody myelinated into their brain was all the things that can go wrong, and they completely missed all the things that can go right. Uh, attaching the this is how you don't do it to humor can completely destroy your successful communication. So, Jason, your thoughts. I'm reminded today that the people who are signing up for the Army and entering basic training were negative six, all right? I mean, I have my math right, when September 11th, 2001 happened. Um, remember your audience. In this case, um, those people also probably weren't born when Ferris Bueller's Day Off came out in what 1985 so it's it's very easy there's this bizarre attentional blink which happens which can alienate your audience and if your audience is younger than you they might not have the same affinity and the same emotional connection to the lines that you just take as gospel because gospel is ephemeral there you go i think there's a lot of wisdom there not not that i ever use ancient and out of date references jesse kester if you are genetically compelled to do this, allow yourself one per hour-long keynote at most. But please, please spare us all. We know that Austin Powers says, yeah, baby, you don't need to remind us.
<laughs> and also, it really helps if you have a, a social circle that you have access to that incorporates a lot of different kinds of people. Because when you see that totally blank look on the 20-something person in the crowd, maybe you realize that you thought everybody knew that, but they don't. Let's go to the next question. Dave Troutman in Edmonton, Canada, writes in, is face-to-face project discussion proven to be more effective than through video, text, email, Slack? Are there studies around on this that I can look for? Nobody raised their hand in terms of a study that they know directly. I think most of us who have been doing this a long time feel that the interactivity and instantaneousness and the ability to read all the facial and body language cues about a face-to-face meeting always add additional nuance and clarity to person-to-person to communication, some of which all get lost when you do something other than that. Video is probably as close to that as anything if it's done well. But uh, Liberty, your thoughts? I was going to say, but then I just re reread it. So we'll see if this this lands or not. But um, being there have been studies around having um, huddles. They used to call them stand up meetings, but for just being more um, inclusive, the huddle meetings. So whether you have those at the beginning of the day and from my awareness that most people that is either doing it, if you've got a physical location, doing those on site and or doing those briefly at the start of the day. And those have a great impact. So as a reference, it's not the full out project meeting, but that face to face where people are sharing their wins and any um, challenges that they have that they're those they find them impactful, if that's helpful. Jason Beige. Alex um, lent himself right at the beginning of COVID pretty heavily into um, to helping somebody with a study about this um, because, of course, Zoom fatigue, the 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 zeitgeist of Zoom fatigue or Zoom fatigue capturing the yeah it doesn't matter, but Zoom Zoom fatigue became a very quick thing and it it happened almost as quickly as people were aware of Zoom and were still learning how to use Zoom they were already becoming fatigued about it. I think that um, regardless of the research that's been done um, prior to now, if if everybody had the wherewithal and the equipment to do learning like office hours, that would not be the case. I, I don't I don't think that this will ever be definitively proven. It will just simply continue to improve until it is indistinguishable from reality. Jesse Kester. Um, this also depends on your modes of communication. For example, I believe that I communicate best face to face. But that only works if everybody in the face-to-face meeting is actually disengaged from video, Slack, email, and uh, their text messaging. Like, everybody has to put down their phones, close up their computers if we're going to have a face-to-face meeting. But uh, depending on your personality type, you might actually be much better at communicating via Zoom or communicating via email. So uh, chase the muse where it leads you. There we go. Next question. Andy Kokendorfer writes it in, is there a way to send Slack direct messages based on a contact list, much like sending an email list? Our users are far more likely to respond to Slack. Thank you. Uh, we didn't have anybody raise a hand on this either, and I'm a little bit surprised. Uh, you know, Slack came into my life when I was working on larger crews. Uh, it was a very big part of it for about 
two to three seasons of production for me. And then I've never had anybody ask me to use it again. So maybe it's just the kind of work I'm doing now versus what I did right then. I know it is still a huge, robust thing. And it's it's a platform that, that a lot of large corporations use as their internal messaging thing. But because I only had limited experience with it... Um, the people who are plumbed into Slack and live and die by it every day, I would think that that is probably their primary means of communication in the corporate internal system. And if you're not playing, you're kind of not on anybody's radar. So uh, I think that's one of those things where depending on what the enterprise has consolidated on as their internal communications and messaging system. You kind of got to play their game if you're in the corporate world. If not, you get to choose, and there are a lot of alternatives now. I just mentioned I spend most of the time on my inter-panelist and thing uh, here in Discord because we have a robust Discord, and it's doing all the functions that I would have expected Slack to be doing before. So uh, things move on, change, and morph. Next question. Uh, let's see. Craig McFarland in Boston, Massachusetts writes in, what tactics do you find effective to coach others when you see miscommunications without triggering defensive behavior? Jesse's going to start us off, then Nigel's going to close. Jesse? I'm going to pull back a little bit and focus on the triggering defensive behavior part of this question. And the, the best two ways that we've found to do this internally is, um, first of all, we never phrase it as this is my DP or this is my gaffer or something like that on a, on a project. It's always uh, framed as a we, never as an I or a my. And the other thing is when having communications, especially sensitive internal communications about a project, we never, we, we do everything we can to not frame it about, uh, from the perspective of individuals, but from the perspective of the needs of the project. And this really takes a lot of the, the weight off of defensive behavior because the, you know, the project is a dispassionate third party that we're discussing. Um, and then we, we pull the conversation from there. Nigel. So if this is an area that interests you, I'm going to recommend a book called The Three Laws of Performance. I've talked about it before, and it really is a very key thought here. And the first law of performance, okay, uh, will will really help you this space. Lots of people think thinking causes action. Thinking does not cause action. What causes action is the way a situation occurs to somebody. Now, we could have a three-hour discussion about this, but in t context of this question, the way I coach people is I would sit down with them and say, how do you think what you said occurred to the person you said it to? So stop thinking about it how you meant to send that communication. Think about how that communication was received. What do you think it meant to that person? How do you think it occurred to them? And the moment you start to think about how that message is received at the other end, you'll change the way uh, communication. By the way, the, that's the best piece of marriage advice I was ever given, which is at some point in your marriage, your partner or whatever your relationship is going to look at you. And rather than start the fight, you say, how did what I just say occur to you? And they're going to answer it, and you're going to go, well, that's not how I meant it. And thus, many an argument can be settled. It's all relationships, business, personal, whatever. It's, it's all interhuman. That's very cool. What was the name of that? Let's just double check so people who might have missed it and it's, want to write it down. It's the, the three, three laws. laws of performance, and, performance. and they're, they're really worth uh, understanding if you want to understand. And, and the, by the way, those the basic thinking behind that 
uh, was used to settle lots of problems with apartheid. It solved the Northern Ireland peace process. It's a very important way of thinking. That's pretty powerful. Jesse Kester, yet additional thoughts? Yeah, I, I just wanted to jump in because, Nigel, both of our answers were focused around um, metathought, and I do believe that metathought is one of the most important foundational buttresses to any interaction that you can have in your entire life. So uh, thank you. Uh, thank you for bringing up what you said. Jesse, I'm, I'm going to presume you mean thought about how you think about things. Is there any addition you want to add to that? Or is that what you're kind of defining as meta thought? That's exactly what I mean. And he touched on it a little bit at the beginning with the uh, thinking doesn't lead to action. Thinking leads to inaction. And that is uh, uh, like a, a core tenet of meta thought is your brain is based on thinking. So if your brain thinks it, then your brain thinks that its job is done doing what needs to be done about the thing. And that's like a, the, one of the biggest glitches that uh, MetaThought exposes, in my opinion. So it's pointing you to, to analyze your thought reaction and go to a step farther and really look at it from a more uh, overview of how you're doing it. it, it interesting what I'm stuff. saying is uh, don't trust your brain. It fools you all the time. <laughs> My brain? Never. No, not me. <laughs> so anyway, next question. Dave Troutman in Edmonton, Canada writes in, what sorts of communication accommodations do we make for people with disabilities? Jesse Kester. Uh, we make as many as we can as per their advice, as per our request for their advice. <laughs> Yeah, I would I would state it is we just start by acknowledging that everybody has the right to access the same information that everyone else does. And if there's something that's getting in the way of that, you need to make all the accommodations you can to to either eliminate or at least dial down those barriers whenever you can. Now, some things are impossible and, and everybody understands that. But if there's something that can be done and it doesn't destroy the entire enterprise, there is absolutely no reason not to make your communications as ecumenical, for lack of a better word, as possible. Everybody should have the same access to the same information. It's kind of like, I think it's a pretty fundamental right. Jason Bache? I think this should be a personal challenge. If if you think that explaining something to somebody is impossible, try it. And then try it again and try it again and try it again. Don't be discouraged. This is one of these, um, I won't give up on you if you don't give up on me type things. And I think you'll find that um, impossible just means I couldn't meta think my way through it before trying it. Yeah. And for me, it's always just if the person with the disabilities, my brother, mother, sister, daughter, friend, uh, would I, you know, what would I want done for them? And that's usually enough to say, well, yeah, I'd want people to work pretty hard to get all the information to as many people as possible. Let's go to the next question. Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana writes in, in tech, we often applaud smaller companies who allow all their employees to communicate to end users, but other companies restrict such openness. Any insights on when this works best? This is a pretty deep subject. Nigel, help us out. I actually work for a company that uh, stopped reply to all on its email system because uh, it was a, a lazy process. Um, I guess I have fairly strict rules about this. Um, in an email system with a uh, all-company uh, distribution list, I restrict who can use that. Um, it, it's uh, great that people want to respond 
to, you know, so-and-so did something good, a company email goes out, then everybody wants to reply to that and everybody wants to say, well, well done. I think you have to be very careful on written communications that you don't, you know, don't fill people's inbox full of stuff, rubbish that you want them to manage. And so... Now, when does that happen? Does that happen in a company of 10 people? No, typically not. You know, there, there's an optimum size of groups, which is about 100. And, and anything over 100 requires a second level of management control or even a third level of management control around it. So if you're a very small team, replying to all, having all communication is fine. But at some point, you're going to hit a level where you're actually doing damage to people's in-baskets, you're distracting them, and you should limit it at that point to, to things you officially need everybody to know. Jesse Kester. Uh, you can applaud all you want. We aren't doing this. Uh, communications is the, the spine of every company on the planet, and you need to be able to control those communications with incredible acuity, especially to your users and client base. Yeah, that's kind of the, the, you know, everybody is now connected. Everybody's on their business platforms. They're also on their social media. And I, boy, it almost seems to me like we're moving into a world where, you know, in, in early education, we used to have to talk about, um, you know, reading, writing, and math. But then eventually, home ec and other softer, and I'm not trying to say that's soft necessarily, but I'm just trying to say there isn't much training about those things. And boy, have I noticed that when social media became more and more popular, what, 20 years ago, uh, there was very little training about how to how to work this stuff with intent and with wisdom. And I still find myself in little traps because I momentarily forget when I push send in this news group or something, uh, that's going to last forever. And I better be able to be be okay with somebody coming back up and saying, well, on this date, you said that. Why have you changed? And I better be able to articulate the reason I moved on from that. I think that is way more true in business communication. It's this thing. You want to be personable, but you also want to be precise so you don't get, your in trouble, or get yourself in trouble. It's not a good time for just off-the-cuff chatting unless you're really good at that. Next question. Dave Troutman in Edmonton, Canada writes in, I had good advice when I first started relying on email at work. Was never put to, well, was never to put anything in an email which may be read back to you in court. Any other basic communication principles to share? Yeah, I think that's said much better than I was just trying to articulate something similar. Nigel, what are your rules? Yeah, 100% with that. I think the other rule, I think, and maybe it fits in with that, is something the bill just said. Be intentional. In your communications as a leader, be intentional. Uh, be consistent as well. If, if by your nature and your style, you are humorous, which is always terribly dangerous in communications, uh, people are going to read your style as humorous. If it's uh, one thing or another, be consistent, be intentional, and be regular in your communications. Jason. Whoops, you're muted, Jason. If uh, there we go, if you are directly uh, above somebody in a corporate hierarchy, um, they will feel immediately needed to, you know, they, they will prioritize what you send to them above perhaps their own work. So be, be very, very careful about um, about wasting their time. If you are the head of an organization, understand that 
you will very quickly become somebody's top priority, even if you're just wasting time on a, you know, on a Monday afternoon and, uh, you know, wanting to update the gang about stuff or motivate or something like that. Jesse Kester. Poor communication in any form or media uh, creates extra meetings. And how many extra meetings do you want this week? <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, that might be the poison pill if you can get that idea across to people. Uh, I will say also this because I deal with this a lot. I do a lot of spoken word work, obviously. And um, we talk a lot about things written for the ear versus written for the eye. And it is tough. I, I spent most of my early career writing for the eye and uh, particularly the magazine articles and things like that. But then I started trying to make it more conversational and I started paying attention to what was written for the ear. Uh, they're two different things. And so I in the informality of the office, and I say that kind of in quotes and scare quotes because it has gotten less formal. I mean, fewer people are wearing suits and ties, except in niche industries, and more business casual stuff happens, and then more just toss off a note in the chat to someone happens. And I think you can get kind of seduced into feeling that it's a jeans and polo shirt culture all the time. And in your communications to, to the points that Nigel has been making, that can be a little dangerous because you start thinking you're just chatting with your buddies in the office, and you're really not. You're chatting with everybody in that system. And as he points out so uh, acutely, it's part of the record. So anything you toss off as a quip or a quote or a joke or whatever, um, when you take away the, intona the tonality of the, I was just joking, but you can't read their attitude, you know? You can, you can say it 10 different ways and, and lighten it a lot by how you say it, but that's not the same as putting it in text and sending it out to somebody. You don't have any clue how it's going to land. Jesse? Uh, for jokes, leave them out of uh, professional communications, uh, mass communications and emails entirely. If you have a killer joke that you need to send to someone on the team, do it via direct message and make sure that it is a joke that lifts up and not pulls down. Amen to that. Next question. Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana writes in, what about books or stories like Who Moved My Cheese? And they're used to instill a company culture of communication. Nigel. Yeah, I know lots of companies that, that pick, uh, you know, a book or a story or something and use that for the basis of, of cultural stuff. Um, I, I recently used uh, Turn That Ship Around to do exactly that in a specific situation. I know other people, uh, Five Lords of Dysfunction, some of those books. And and you can create a company culture or fix something in your culture around using those. But my advice to, is do it sparingly. That that you're if if you stop, you know, once a month, hey, I read two, one or two of these books every month. If once a month you stand up and say, hey, here's the new thought, it's just going to disappear. So if there is something absolutely germane to the situation you're in, I I really needed to solve a problem around moving. Uh, decision-making down the organization, which is why Turn the Ship Around was so useful. And, and I'm still using that a couple of years later as the as the force behind it. If you find that you do read a lot of books and there is a group around you that get interested in that, start a book club, start a reading uh, group, and that can often at work. You, you'll do that. 
But once you've found one of these thoughts, try and be consistent with it. Try and stick with it. Don't, don't deluge people with too many of these ideas. Jason Beige? I find immediate irony in the concept of um, putting somebody, putting, you know, 100 pages of reading in front of somebody in order to foster a system of communication. That, to me, is inherently backwards. If you can't, if you don't understand, if you can't explain it, you don't understand it. So, you know, throwing a book at somebody is throwing the book at somebody. It, It feels like the worst possible thing. That said, I really liked Principles by Ray Dalio. Well, I will say, because you brought up who moved their cheese, and so that was a a thing that happened, what, 20, 30 years ago? I can't remember exactly when it was. I know I was in the corporate office space at that point, and and everybody was talking about it. The nice thing about it is it was about change management, and so many companies at that time were being kind of reinvented, and there was tremendous amounts of fear and confusion among all levels of organizations about, will we be merged, acquired, is my job safe, and the rest of that. So um, that little metaphorical fairy tale for all of, uh, you know, it was just mice and cheese and why isn't it the same as it was yesterday and I'm stressed out, did a pretty good job of framing the issue for management to say, look, things are going to be different. We will help you manage this, but you must confront that things are going to be different. So, um, and and by simplifying it into that kind of storybook fairy tale animated little not animated necessarily but just little character things, it took all the sting. We're not talking about you person or you person or whatever. We're looking at a group of mice trying to do something with cheese. Um, I thought it was pretty effective back then. And there's been other companies who have tried to take these overall lessons and find a way to personalize and kind of publicize the ideas so that it can go top to bottom in an organization and everybody can read it and at least understand what the company's thinking about. It was an interesting era that I won't soon forget. Let's go to the next question. Douglas Carmichael writes in, do you think that RTO is as, oh, wait a minute, David Brady writes in, how does how can one influence management for a team to adopt a vision, mission, and value statement without upsetting management's ego? Okay, uh, Jesse Kester. Uh, you've kind of painted us into an impossible corner here because uh, you're, you're, it sounds like you're trying to influence the vision, the mission, and the value statement, which is a very, very top-down view of the company without uh with like there's a there's a bit of ego attached to this and you're trying to not uh upset upper management's ego even though you're trying to change the you know trying to influence the entire shape of the company um to pull back from that impossible corner a little bit i i think the trick is to give upper management credit uh whether they deserve it or not that's the best way to to um to help uh, stubborn egos along the way. Um, and as long as the project is moving forward productively and in the direction you want to go, does it really matter who gets credit for this verbiage on that vision statement? Nigel? Yeah, like Jesse, I, I, I think you've set an impossible task. Uh, if your uh, senior management either are not consistent with the vision of mission or won't update it or change it or even produce one, there's relatively little you're going to do to fix that. Uh, maybe the more interesting question is, why are they not doing it? 
What is the context that would make them not want to make those changes, not want to stick by them? There's probably something else going on you don't know about that hasn't got to you, and um, that might be might be the core of this. I, you know, as someone who spends my life helping people write visions and missions, they are very difficult to do. They are very difficult to get right. And invariably, they take many iterations. So that may just be that they're working on the next one and they're iterating it because there's a lot of selling and understanding. And the perfect vision and mission can take years to get right. Jason? I'm reminded of Hamilton, you know, the got to be in the room where it happened. You might not be in the room where it happens unless you're going to hoist a little pirate flag up outside of your office. Um, you might be too far disconnected from this. And um, if you're getting, if, if what you're saying is falling on, on uh, deaf ears, it's probably because they are intentionally deaf. Jesse? Also, uh, maybe consider that your vision, your mission, and your value statements don't align exactly with the company that you're working for. And maybe there are other companies or a company that you yourself could build that are more aligned with your vision, your mission, and your value statement. I'm just going to add this. I, I remember the more I worked with senior executives at the top of organizations, the, the more I realized how little I understood about what they actually did. Uh, you know, down on the line, you're seeing all sorts of problems. You're thinking, why can't they do this? And boy, if I could just talk to them, I could get them to fix this. As you go up the, the organizational chain, you get to interact with higher level officials. You find that they have ton of other influences on their decision making that may have little or nothing to do with the problems that you're seeing down at the bottom. Uh, famously, I remember uh, a circumstance I mentioned here before where uh, I was talking to the CEO and he said, yeah, we're getting hammered on Wall Street. The only thing I can really be concerned about right now is our share price. If, I, if, if every action I don't take affects share price, uh, I'm going to get in trouble down the line. And so I then would hear discussions uh, from somewhere in the org chart, not at that level, and they were trying to solve things that had nothing to do with that. And I remember a little voice in the back of my head said, well, that's not going to happen. Why? Because it doesn't align with what's happening at the top of the organization. And the top has way more responsibility. And the people at the bottom don't have the information to understand why some of those top line de uh, decisions are being made the way they are. Now, this isn't always true. And I'm not saying that every time you, you don't know better than the CEO or the president about this little niche of things. And to have a system where those better ideas can percolate up is a big part of making businesses run well. But it's not easy. Uh, decisions are not always easy at the top. And there are a lot of factors that you may not know about that goes into why those aren't being made the way you think they think they might. So all you can do is uh, my suggestion is if you can if you can learn to foster mentorships and you can get an ear that's friendly to you that is higher up the chain and quietly uh, start a series of lunches or meetings or whatever uh, communication, maybe you can get more insight into those and maybe they will identify you as someone who's interested in those more top line things and help you ascend the ladder that I've also seen happen. Mentors mentorships can be very powerful in business. Let's move to the next level. Douglas Carmichael writes in that you think that RTO is as much of a communication magic bullet as its advocates say. 
I'm not sure what you mean by RTO there. Return on, I, I don't know. Yeah, um, yeah let Anybody me, let me jump in here. This the recovery, Yeah, so Douglas, if you're talking about reco- recovery time oh. objective, that is return ex- to office. Return to office, RTO. Return, return to, to office. office. Oh, okay. I'm like, see, Both. that is a technical thing that like only network people know about. And like, well, it's so, not network. It's it's downsizing and upsizing in the end of the pandemic and return to office being a yeah. big. When do you f- force your people to come back in? It's it's a huge and important topic. Uh, yeah. And, I love and, I, I love the analogy of a magic bullet because we both we, we all know that it is predicated a, a, a you know upon the Kennedy assassination of the fact that that bullets don't take this trajectory and as, as such it, it, it's it's one of these like twisted metaphors that that it ends up in idiom land for me immediately. Well, I always think it in terms of the medical industry that people are looking for here's a tumor. Do we have a magic bullet drug that will go kill that tumor and not bother the rest of the health of the patient? Uh, so I now I, now that I get the context, yeah. And and Nigel has some thoughts, Nigel. Uh, so two things. First of all, what just happened then was a good example of using an acronym which which produces bad communication because I thought reti- recovery time objective as well. So I was actually, you know, trying to work out the what that meant as well. So be careful of your acronyms, your you know the words that you you use, whatever your local language in your written communication, so that the bit message there. Um, I, I I don't know the answer to that. I don't know whether uh, it's going to be a magic bullet, but but here's my biggest concern about. The, the opposite, which is the remote working. That I think if you are late in your career and you are very established and your value is very clear, it's very easy for you to work from home because you are more important to your, your employer than they are to you. If you are early in your career or building a career, you need mentors, you need coaches, you need to be in the flow of the business. Uh, and you are more uh, they are more important to you than you are to them so so don't don't confuse yourself and where you are in your career with where more senior people who have established their value are you will not build a career you will not end up as the director the vice president the general manager uh, except in very exceptional circumstances without being in the flow and the flow is in the office uh, amen to that i think that's been my experience exactly let's go to the next question Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana, writes in, Disney used to get applauded for training their people in the Disney way. What companies do a great job of communicating their values both inside and outside today? Jesse, start us off. I know that anecdotal evidence is not admissible in a court of law, but every experience I've had with black magic design employees has been exactly in tune with what I'd expect from uh, from a company that produces their products. I have uh, opened up uh, uh, help tickets that they have checked back in on like a month, two months, three months later, just seeing if I was uh, if, if the. Uh, if the uh, the fix was implemented well and if it continued to work in the way that they and I expected it to work. And Nigel, close us out. When I used to call on customers, somebody gave me the advice, look at the reception of the office building you are walking into. You can deduce everything about the culture of that company from its reception. Is it sterile? Is it warm? Is it welcoming? Does it make it easier? That is now true of the website 
of the customer service hotline and all communications that you have. Think of the reception when you next meet a company going to a retail store. Think about what that says. I think there are some companies that do this quite well. I think Blackmagic is a good example. I would have to tell you, Apple is a good example. I think increasingly Disney is not a good example. And I think Disney is not a good example because it seems to me, at least in some of their movie franchises, they have lost synchronization with their audience. You know, one of the best examples to me, and I appreciate that, you know, Chris should be here and tell me this is the third rail thing, is the Bud Light thing. Regardless of the politics of that, you've got to ask, was the communication they did an adjacent or within the line of the people they were trying to communicate with? And the answer was they were. They were outside it. And that's about synchronizing who you are with your audience and who the message is. And and when you do that well, it's very successful. And when you do it badly, there's a huge disconnect. Yeah, I would imagine that the phone lines in that organization burned up for weeks, if not months, and trying to manage a, a, an out-of-left-field thing like that. Jason Bates, you had some thoughts? Plus one on Blackmagic Design, um, all the way from the CEO down, every personal in, you know, in real time, in real space interaction, including my calls to customer service and my emails, I'm thoroughly impressed with how well they handle what must be a deluge of, of new business, even since the ATEM, because it, the culture has had to change. They've had to scale up quite a bit, and they've really managed to keep their their quality control in check. Um, hmm. No, I lost my last one, so that's all I got. All right, that's that's fair. We're getting close to the end of things now. Uh, and a couple of th- a couple of notes here. We may close a minute or two early, and that's fine. Uh, don't forget, tomorrow should be really really interesting. Sketching in three D the Feather app again. You know, we were on the show floor, and I don't think it was Cinegear. I think somebody noted to me that it was one of the other shows, and I can't even see that now in my list of things. Seagraph. Okay, so we were on the floor uh, of the show at Seagraph, and uh, this was uh, a wow moment. I I know Alex was really fascinated with this in terms of real-time, three-dimensional sketching. And when you think about that process of not just working in, in height and width, but also depth and the ability to instantaneously rotate and sketch depth cues into your uh, just doodling for all intents and purposes. I'm I'm sure it goes farther than that. We'll know about that tomorrow. But that's our topic for tomorrow. We'll be talking about 3D sketching and the use of touch devices. And um, we'll have both the chief engineer and the community manager on tomorrow to talk and demonstrate the project. So if you're interested in that at all, tomorrow's a great day for you. I'm not sure what's happening Wednesday. I don't think I was able to find a cue for that. On Friday, Thursday, however, uh, on our normal video day, Calvin Robich is going to be here. Sounds like really a fascinating person, former paratrooper. Uh, he's done, it notes here, he's done video production on five continents and time zones and war zones, worked on feature films and more. So he has a wealth of experience, particularly under stressful circumstances. I mean, every set to a certain degree is stressful because you're trying to get content and you've got a bunch of people gathered together and you're trying to do your job before you break apart. But that should be a brilliant masterclass in how somebody who's successfully done this under the most difficult circumstances possible. So we're looking forward to that Thursday here on the show. Um, And now just our thank yous. And these are important. Every day, this whole village gets together and the village is 
full of people who are putting their time and effort into helping you learn things. And we're very proud of what we do here every day. We're proud of the fact that we get this village together. There's a plenty of people who really deserve way more credit than they actually get on the show every day. But we try to acknowledge at least three of the biggest groups. Um, our producers, that's everybody who asks questions in the show. Those of you who have joined the Office Hours community and help us drive this process by putting your questions in. Thank you. Every day you come through with these brilliant questions that generate fascinating, at least I find them, totally fascinating discussions. And I come away from here every day knowing more than I showed up with. And boy, if that isn't a plus for why I do something, nothing is. So the panelists are one of those tripod legs. Uh, Of course, the crew in the back end, unbelievable efforts to make this happen every day. A group from all over the planet shows up to get this happening, and we appreciate each and every one of them. Um, and the panelists, the people who show up here every day, more or less fewer people depending on how things uh, show up. But every day we get a wealth of experience from people who are just volunteering, saying, I'll show up and I will open up and I will try to help everybody coming up figure out how to do this stuff more efficiently, uh, more successfully. And uh, I can't tell you how many friends I've made out of this group. There's just absolutely fabulous people. And I feel like it's a real privilege to be able to sit here in this panel every day, listen and learn and hopefully help make things happen for this. Right after we're done here, of course, Office Hours goes 24-7. We are on the cusp of our IBC coverage. So uh, I believe it's Saturday that, that the whole show comes live. I may be wrong about that, but IBC starts this weekend and then runs into uh, the early days of next week. Uh, it is very much like NAB. For those of you who aren't familiar with IBC, it's the big international broadcast convention in Europe. Happens in Amsterdam. So we will be there in Amsterdam on the show floor. We'll get to to take a look at what IBC looks like and learn about all the hot new stuff. And since we're coming well now out of the pandemic, things and manufacturing is up and new equipment and projects, uh, products are being designed and now are finally in the production flow, uh, we should be able to do uh, get a great look at what kind of what's coming down the pike. So join us for uh, all of our IBC concert uh, con stuff. I think there's also stuff happening in after hours kind of like daily as well as the show portions of it. So do check out the website. Look for our our signals for IBC coverage if you're interested in that. And again, I think it's going to take over the show at least once, maybe twice over the course of the next few days. More on that coming up. Thanks for watching. See you tomorrow. If you ever really want to get freaked out, call Bose Customer Service. You don't don't get any computer. It's, hi, this is Bose. My name's Mike. And I go, wait, what? what? (laughs) Mike, are you a computer? None of this fake Comcast computer clicking sound. Mike just answers the phone. I got stuck in that. Oh, dear. Yeah. I burned an hour the other day in one of those phone systems, and I had to do it, and I hated it. I bought a remote control I didn't need from Mike because I was so shocked.